people like to have rituals that they do. Like when they go to bed, they do certain things. When they get up in the morning, they do certain things in a certain order. And it means that they don't have to think about everything that they're doing. But should we just be doing things by habit? Welcome to The Conquering Truth. I'm Dan Horn. I'm Jonathan Sides. I'm Charles Churchill. And I'm Joshua Horn. You know, whether you call them habits or rituals, uh, we all have certain actions that we repeat in a certain order to order our daily lives. And, and this is a good thing. This is a useful thing that people do. And, and churches have this as well. They all have a liturgy. Some have very strict liturgy where they'll have responsive readings and everybody's supposed to say certain words at certain times. Or other churches have looser liturgies, like, like Reformation's looser, that we have, you know, we, but we do sing a song. We have three things in a row, and then we sing three other songs. And so there's a real order to the service. But what, what dangers are there, and what benefits are there to, to having you know, rituals and liturgies? So, I mean, I think one of the things it comes down to is, you know, we're thinking beings, and there's a part of it where when you do things, your thoughts, your thoughts get ordered by what you do. And so there's this part of it where there's an advantage in doing things in a way that is conducive to, to help you think about things in a proper way. God's, God's, God's a God of order, and there is a proper order to do things in. And so when you do things in the right, like we talk about like how that music and music can order your, can align your emotions and your thoughts and so that your, so that your thoughts and your emotions are aligned. It can, for people who are marching, it can cause their bodies to be aligned with each other so that they're all going in the same direction and they're all marching in the same way. And so there's an advantage to things that, that let you think in a certain way. And then on the other side, there's a disadvantage because if your things are structured in a certain way, it'll pull your thoughts in a direction that's not useful. If, if someone creates habits or things that, that pull you against things that God says are good, your thoughts will be your thoughts will be ordered by those things. And so habits are good, but they can also be dangerous. And so the real answer is, is do you have good habits? Do you have bad habits? Because everything really does matter. I mean, it, it reminds me of a, a story that I, I remember hearing like growing up about this girl who when she, her mother taught her how to make a ham. And when she would make the ham, she would always cut off, you know, that they would always cut off one end of the ham. And she asked her mom, why do we cut off the end of the ham? She goes, I don't know. I was just taught to do that by my mom. And they went to her mom and says, why do we always cut off this end of the ham? And she goes, I don't know. That's how my mom taught me to do it. So they went back to the great grandmother and they said, you know, very old now, when you make the ham, why do you always cut off the end of the ham? And she goes, oh, well, when I made it, I had this tiny pan and the ham wouldn't fit in it. So I always cut off the end of the ham. And so you have this thing that started way back when it started for a very particular reason, but three generations later, they're doing it and their actions have become divorced from the thought. And so, you know, it's, it can be dangerous because in the end you can do things for no reason, but in the end you think they have meaning because th- we ascribe meaning to things. So there's both sides of that and, it, and it, it plays out through, I think, throughout our entire lives. I think we can get, you know, you were saying that it kind of helps you order your thoughts. It also makes it so that you don't have to think. Right. You know, after I do this, I'm going to do this because, and part of that is because, you know, we are thinking about other things. And sometimes you do a ritual where you have specific steps. And by ritual, I mean as simple as, you know, you shave before you brush your teeth. And one of the reasons that you do that is you do it in that order, not because there's even that material of a reason, but that way you don't forget to do things when you're half asleep in the morning. Right, and some of well, it you is, shave before you brush your teeth because that way the whiskers fall on the thing when you brush your teeth. You actually rinse the sink out. I mean, but I mean, but you know no, what I mean. And there, I mean, you there, can do it at a higher level. There can be a real thought. reason, right? But a lot of times, that you know, another advantage is because we almost check out, right? Because we don't think we just go, okay, these are the steps that you do, like the cutting of the ham. There was no thought there. It wasn't ordering it to get her to think about it. It was this is just what you do, right? And so we have to be really careful with, with those rituals that we put in our lives because they can cause us not to think. Right. And the other danger is, is that people will say there must be meaning to this because we've always done it. And so, people, like I said, I mean, there are things that children do because they've always done it, but then they start to ascribe meaning to it that wasn't intended by the person who actually created it in the first place. The person who created it didn't communicate the reason. And so people are attributing reason to it. For example, like, you know, I know there, you know, at times there have been times at church where we had policies that, you know, pregnant women should go through the food line first. And it's not a bad policy. There's nothing wrong with it. But all of a sudden, 
people start to go, well, women are going to go through the food line first. And what does that mean? Does it mean that women go through by themselves? Does it mean that women, you know, that that you should allow women to go through separately? Or does the whole family go through first? And why is it just women who are pregnant? Is it women who are, you know, I mean, people start to think about real things and they start to ascribe real meaning to it. And that maybe wasn't the intention. It was just, hey, I thought it would be good to do that. And, you know, so, I mean, it's it's very easy to be unintentionally deliberate about something and it becomes its own entity. It becomes its own creation over time and people start to derive meaning from your ritual. And because rituals do teach things, you know, whether intentional or not, they will teach something. And so all of a sudden that you send pregnant women through first and that's, you know, whether the idea is that they'll be hungrier because they have a baby growing inside them or whatever the reason is, is that you do that, but then that's also saying that's more important than the family going through together, that you're elevating people, and all of a sudden people will read in reasons if you're not stating the reasons, because people assume that there's reasons. Right. And so then they'll make up their reasons regardless of what the reasons are. And you also have all kinds of uh, rituals that uh, we just, and habits that we just do without even without assuming that there's a reason to it. Um, you know, there's a lot, so many cultural things that we just do without thinking about them. Um, and some of them had uh, real meanings behind them at one point. Some of them didn't. Some of them had good meanings. Some of them had bad meanings. Some of them are good things to do. Some of them are bad things to do. Uh, but it's really easy just to kind of just accept whatever the culture sends your way and just live that out without spending any time thinking about, is this the right thing to do? I mean, we've talked a lot about the idea of taking thoughts captive and also about having your mind renewed by God's word. Romans 12, 2 says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so, I mean, the verse is pretty straightforward in the sense that if your mind is renewed, depending on the way you think, it will cause you to do those things that prove the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So, I mean, your thoughts and your actions are obviously connected, and they're connected in a way that if you, th- if you think the way God thinks, you will do those things that glorify God. You will, you, will, you will order things in a way so that they glorify God. And, I mean, that's just pretty fundamental, I think. I mean, when I think about these things in a practical sense, there are times in our lives where we're creating new rituals, and I think it's you know, like when you get married. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, you know, I, I, when I talk to people who are getting married, it's like be really deliberate about the things that you do. You know, you're, you, you're creating a, a new creature has kind of been created. There were two of you, and now you two have become one. You're setting up a new household. And you have this tendency to some things you're going to take from your parents' family, from your different parents' family. You're going to take something from your household. You're going to take some things from her household. Some things you're going to do that are going to be completely different. And it's really easy to not think about things. I remember how easy it was for me and my wife to just, you know, to maybe sit down and have dinner with the TV in front of us. And that was really, and I remember early on going, this is not good. <laughs> you know, I mean, we're just, it was just an easy place to fall into. And it started to become that instead of us having conversation, instead of us talking about things, we would just sit down and watch something together while we ate. And that was going to become our ritual. And then we were going to get kids and we were just going to add them into it. And it was like, wait a minute, we need to stop and we need to actually think about what we're doing. We're actually creating something. And each thing that we create has meaning behind it. And it's really important at that point to say, you know, what you're recognizing is, in a sense, you didn't have to say, we're deliberately going to sit down and watch television. It's just something that happened. And But realize, regardless of how deliberate you were being, you were creating a pattern. And that's pretty much inescapable. We we create ha- we create patterns all the time, and we're either just falling into them, or we're making conscious decisions <laughs> along the way to create those patterns or to follow patterns that have been set by others for us. But you can't get away from that. And so, you know, the point of having a podcast like this is think about the patterns. Right. If you grew up in certain types of households, you had a junk room. Other households never have junk rooms. You know, I mean, I mean, there's some, some households, they're all junk. The rooms. whole house is a junk room. I mean, and I mean, and, and these are, I mean, and these are real things. They're choices. At a certain point, someone said, I don't want to figure out where to put that. So they th- opened the store and they threw it in there and they threw more in there. And eventually the room became a junk room as opposed to sometimes it's just a corner as the junk corner. You know, I mean, but it's, they're all, like you said, they're deliberate, not deliberate. We're really making a choice and we're maybe not really thinking about it. But at the same time, we, 
they're made up of all the things we believe that are important. And if we thought it was more important to not have a junk room, we wouldn't have had one. You know, I mean, if we thought it was important to not sit in front of the TV, we wouldn't have sat in front of the TV. And so there was a there's a reason why we do them. And we just need to understand that you can't escape your obligation and you can't escape the fact that on some level you are thinking about it. And, you know, they take up so much of your life as well. You know, you look at there's websites where you can see, you know, for if you live 60 years, here's here's a percentage of time you're going to spend doing this. Here's the percentage of time you spend doing that. Or, you know, and that ends up in huge amounts of time. You spend weeks of your life doing, you know, things that you spend a tiny amount doing every day. Right. Um, and it's really easy to just uh, create something that you spend a huge amount of time in without even giving it a second thought. And when you bring, like you were saying, when you bring your wife into it, when you bring your children into it, all of a sudden you're teaching them and the next generation is going to continue to do it. And a lot of times they'll do it without even thinking about it, right? I mean, you know, we've had young men that moved into our house that, I mean, literally their whole house was a junk room. That whenever they saw anything, they went, this has value, so we need to keep it. And so it just builds up stuff. And when they moved in with us, it's like, that's not happening. And it still happened more than I would have liked. But, but it's like they just obviously you can't throw this thing away. It has value. Instead of going, the value has to be that it's useful, not just that there's some intrinsic value to somebody someplace at the right time. But that was the ritual of their household, and that's what they did. And you had to, like, it had to, it was work to break it. If you want to be scared about your own rituals, go into your phone and, you know, look at whatever the screen time settings is and prepare to see the rituals that you create in your life. But wait a second. I don't want to be spending an hour a day on this website, but I am, even if I don't realize it. And, you know, it, it's really easy to create these things where this huge block of time gets sucked up by things that if we really were saying, do we want to spend time on this? The answer is no. Right. So it's, there's a lot of children who the reason they want a phone, <clears throat> they want a phone from the time they're very young. And the reason they want a phone is because they see their father spending so much time on his. You know, I mean, they see him sit there and all he does is do things on his phone. And they're like, I want it. And it's, it's, a, it's an admirable thing in one sense. I want to be like my father. I want to be <laughs> like him. And, and, and then once they, you know, I mean, and so, I mean, it's yeah. In the end, like I said, other people ascribe more value to things sometimes than you ascribe to it yourself, even though your choosing to do it is obviously a statement of value. Yeah, the Reykjavites, they were commanded to, you know, not build houses, to not, you know, drink wine, to to basically be nomads and drive cattle. So you look at Jonadab, and Jonadab was deliberately setting rituals for his descendants, right, which is, you know, his they're named after his father, Rechab. But the Rechabites were told, you know, don't build houses to be keepers of cattle, to, to uh, you know, not drink wine. And from that, he created a really deliberate separate group of people that end up, when, when Jeremiah brings them in, that they, that they won't drink wine. And, and God says, you know, that they'll always live before me because of the rituals that were set in place and that they were obeying those rituals and that they were, they were looking at them and considering them. And, and so we should just recognize that God really uses them, and he uses them to protect the people. That when you set up the right rituals, they're very, you know, they create a unity of the people that don't exist otherwise. And so when we think about it, we should ask ourselves, even our family and things like that, the rituals that we create, are we going to create rituals that create, you know, create a culture that is a culture that should be sustainable? Versus like you were saying, we could sit down with your wife right after you were married and start watching television, and that will be the culture of our children. As opposed to, we can set cultures to go forward in the next generation. And it's real, and it's, there's a part of it where if you do become deliberate, it's real work. I mean, it, it really, it really, one of the reasons why people don't think about it is because it's work. It's, it's, it's always easier to kind of follow the path of least resistance. I think it was probably 14 years ago that maybe you and I and maybe about six young men from the church went, you know, took a trip up north. And I remember thinking about it at the time. One of the things you kept doing on the trip was, you know, we would we would read sections from um, the introduction to the death of death and the death of Christ by J.I. Packer. You know, we would read through that. We would work on scripture memory. And I remember kind of even commenting like to some of the guys as we were doing it is, it took real effort on your part because if you didn't do that, we were just going to talk. We were going to talk about whatever came up, and the time would have been a lot less useful. But you actually, you know, every little bit, you're all right. We're going to do this now. We're going to do this now. We're going to do this. And I was, you know, I was 
hadn't been married that terribly long at the time, was just kind of starting to have kids. And I remember that being really influential. There was this part of it where my thought was, it takes real labor and effort to create a culture. I mean, you can you can set back and let it happen, but if you say, I want to do these things, you have to fight. You have to keep pushing. You have to force, other, you know, you have to force it because otherwise everybody's going to kind of pull away and do what they want to do. You have to make it, and it, it takes it takes real effort to sanctify things. And I think that's that's part of this when you think about it is, are you if you're being deliberate, it's going to take real work. And it's really easy to say this is what our family's going to do, and your kids will learn real quick. Every once in a while, mom get real, ex- mom and dad get real excited about certain things, and we do certain things for about a week, and then we stop. You know, right. don't worry, it's not going to last for long because your kids know whether you actually have staying power or not, and so you need to take that into your calculations. I mean, one thing that we see is that you know when God is establishing a new nation, that's very much what He does. He goes, okay, so here's the deal. Every day you have to do, uh, you know, you have to do a burnt offering in the morning and a burnt offering in the evening. Every day you have to trim the lamps. You have to, you have to, you know, burn incense on the altar of incense. You know, Exodus thirty twenty one. So they shall wash their hands and their feet lest they die. It shall be a statute forever to them, to him and his descendants throughout their generations. And so they had to wash their hands and their feet. They had to then burn the the burnt offering. They then had to go trim the lamp. They then had to go burn the incense. And God is setting this cultural standard that they had to do. And it wasn't just for the priests. They would also, three times a year, they had to go up for feasts. And so God was very deliberate about saying, okay, there should be rituals in this nation that will be the things that testify to who I am so that they remember me. And so when we think about it, you know, I mean, that's one of the things that God does when he establishes basically a new creature, so to speak, this new nation that after Israel goes into the promised land. I mean, it's even more basic than that. It's what God does when he creates something. He, you know, we have a sun, moon, and stars for times and seasons and days and years because God is a God of, of ritual. He created the world with ritual built into it, even before you get to the specific religious things that we talk about in Exodus. It's just, it's literally the world that we live in. Right. I mean, even the the sun going down every night is a sign that we're supposed to go to sleep and the, you know, the pattern of sleep and being awake and all those things are built into creation. You mean right. not podcasting? Not podcasting. <laughs> And, I mean, we should also look at how we, I mean, every parent leverages these things with their children. You know, go get ready for bed. Well, they're not telling them every time, these are the things you should do to get ready for bed. Yes, we are. Well, (laughs) until they learn. Yes, we are. (laughs) It depends what age. I don't tell Joshua anymore. (laughs) Wait, I'm supposed to brush my teeth? (laughs) But, I mean, we, we do this with shorthand so that we can... You know, that we don't have to go through it. Now, yes, you do have to remind them at times. But the reality is that the reason that we set rituals in place is so that we don't have to keep repeating the same thing over and over again. Early on in the podcast, we were talking about rituals as being, you know, one of the things to be wary of is you may not be thinking about them. But it's also one of the advantages is you don't have to think about it. It's when I get in my car, I put my seatbelt on. I don't even think about it anymore. It's just this ritual I have because somebody made me do it a lot when I was a little kid. And right. And because I'm not doing that, I can think about other things. And, you know, so, so it's, it's valuable to have them in order to not think about them in, in a certain sense. I mean, it's one of those things where when you're a child, you hate ritual in a sense. I mean, I mean, I shouldn't say all children, but there's a part of it where one of the aspects of youth is you feel like you should be free to do whatever you want to do. You don't understand the reason for it. And I, I remember as a kid thinking, I mean, I, I actually really want us to do a podcast about the different stages in life and the purpose of them. But one of these things that I remember is going, as a kid, I told myself, I see adults and they're so rigid. I'm never going to become rigid. I'm never going to become like that. And I remember there's this part of it where I remember having the realization the reason you have to become rigid is because if you don't, you'll collapse under your own. It's like a tree. You know, you have a young tree. It can be bent all these different ways. But at a certain point, if it's going to become a large tree, it has to become rigid or it can never support its own weight. And it's going to become rigid at a certain point. It's unavoidable. It's one of the things people don't tell you is at a certain point, you're going to become set in your ways. I am. 
Yes. <laughs> I mean, and you're going to be set in someone's ways. And and you can't escape it. And if you and if you and you know, it's like a tree. A tree can either you know, if they bent the tree, you know, finally the tree is gonna be like in this horrible shape, and that's the shape it's gonna be in. And so there's this part of it where ritual is necessary. We have to develop ways, we have to develop patterns, we have to develop things that we do because in the end you do start to settle in those things. And if you don't settle in it, you fall apart. And so, you know, I mean, and so, it, you know, it's the inescapability of it in one way, but it's absolutely necessary. And I, and I don't think we, we really, we don't teach ourselves what ritual is about. So there's two levels. Is, I mean, I think we were talking about before the podcast is a lot of people don't think about their rituals. A lot of people definitely don't think about thinking about their rituals. <laughs> and I mean, and, but you have to, you have to th- you have to teach your children not just that you should have them, but their purpose for them as they go, because they need to be evaluating them. They need to be considering them, and they need to consider them before they're adults, because there's a point where they become th- who they are. And some of it becomes, right, I mean, there's like two aspects of it. There's the aspect that you consider it, and then you just dismiss it, like with the seatbelt, right? You consider it, and you go... It's not that much work to put a seatbelt on. It's against the law not to put a seatbelt on. So I'll just put a seatbelt on. And now I've made that decision. When I sit down in the driver's seat, when I sit down in the passenger seat, I'm going to immediately put a seatbelt on. And then you can just kind of dismiss it and be done with it. But when we think about, you know, Paul talking about renewing your mind, we should really be thinking about these things because, you know, the seatbelt's a good one and you can think about it and go, yeah, I should wear a seatbelt. There's no reason not to wear a seatbelt. It's just kind of foolish not to in a lot of ways. But there's other rituals that we just kind of adopt from before salvation, and we don't even consider them. And we should really, to renew our minds, means you kind of consider all of them, which doesn't mean that some of them you don't consider them and go, yeah, I'll keep wearing a seatbelt. But you need to consider them all because they all have roots. They all have things that they're pointing to. They all have, you know, they all have a testimony of some sort. Right. There's, in a sense, there's good rituals that are that part of their utility is just I'm able to, to not think about it and move on and think about other things. And then, you know, when you get to this verse about renewing your mind, in a sense, you could say what he's doing is saying reevaluate some of your rituals. Certainly, I would argue one Certain aspect of what Certain patterns of thinking that you have need to be renewed. You need to turn them over. It means you're you're stuck in certain ruts and— they aren't the right ones. You need to get out of those. You need to think the way God says to think about them. And if you don't evaluate them, then what you there's a point where what you do is you start to value the form of things rather than the substance of things. There's a part, you know, in other words, there are things that people do, and they go, "That's just not how we do it here." And and that, like I said, if it's good, that can be good, but it's never good to just have it as that's not how we do it, and no one understands it, and you can't explain it, and you can't articulate it there's a point where you need to be able to do that and that's and that's kind of what you're saying in a sense is as you think about things it it allows you to change them because you don't make it you don't make it holy for some other reason you don't make it sacred and and this and this also fights against getting set in your ways in some ways is because if you do keep considering it even though you become rigid and you become set you also become someone who can change when he has to change and when he needs to change and that's and that's valuable but there also can be a point where you go, I'm never going to change. I don't need to consider it again. You know, the example I would think of is the Sabbath. Sure. You know, some years ago, I spent a lot of time thinking about the Sabbath. I wrote a book about the Sabbath. Now I keep the Sabbath, not perfectly, but I keep the Sabbath, and I don't think about it. I don't need to review the reasons. Nobody's ever going to bring a reason that makes me go, I should be open-minded about the Sabbath. The Sabbath is clear in Scripture. You don't need, you know, and there is a point where you've researched enough that it's not like a constant, you know, I should keep reevaluating this. No, you should just go, I'm done. I have, I have other problems I need to work on, and I should work on those problems. And to just keep revisiting the same thing isn't the right answer either. You don't need to be open-minded about whether you're a man or a woman. Right. You know what I mean? I mean, exactly. like you, don't, you don't need to sit around going, well, I wonder, you know, if something could happen today and I could find out that, you know, I mean. Right. I mean, assuming you're a biologist. <laughs> only, if, only if you're a biologist. There's, I think it's a Chesterton quote, something to the effect of the point of an open mind is the point of an open mouth. It's to close on something. And it's, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I remember a pastor doing something similar to what you were doing, but you know, there was there was a person in his church who was coming to him and trying to 
debate the doctrine of the Trinity. And he basically said, no, the church is settled on this. We're not even going to give it any time. You're, the, the doctrine you're brings a heresy. End of discussion. We, right. And you should have a discussion with them to try to persuade them, but to bring it before the church or involve the church, I mean, no, it's done. Right. The old saying, yeah, there's no such thing as a stupid question. Yeah. There are stupid questions. There's dangerous questions, too, right. where questions that are just trying to undermine things and get people to question things, not out of a righteous way, but question things just for the sake of confusion. And, right, you can go in and you can start to say like you did with the Trinity and get some, you know, maybe you only get 5% of the church to really question the Trinity. But is that still useful? Is that helpful for them? Probably not. My children most often want to talk about the philosophy of whatever when they're supposed to be doing some other form of work. <laughs> you know what I mean? When I, I'm trying to get, to, why do we do that, Dad? What is that? Oh, can you tell us more about this? What's the history of this? Can you, what's the etymology of that word? You know, they're always interested in stuff like that when there's some work that actually needs to be done. So, yeah, there's a time and place to think about things and there's, other times when you really shouldn't. You know, and even when we think about our walk in the way that, you know, God trains us and teaches us, we get to the point where we should just walk in certain ways without having to go back and constantly go, is this what I'm doing? Is this what I should be doing? You know, 1 John 3, 7 says, little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. Righteousness should just be a a reaction. This is just the right thing to do. And it can't be a constant reevaluation. All you get into is this mental gymnastics where you're constantly trying to figure things out instead of saying, I have things figured out in certain areas. And just accept that. And these things become rituals, right? You wake up at this time, you do devotions. At this time, you read the Bible, then you pray, then you sing a song. Those aren't things that are bad to have as rituals. They're bad if you're just doing them for the sake of the ritual. But those things, I mean, there is an aspect of practicing righteousness where you get into a practice of it where it's just the order of your life. Right. And when you don't have any rituals, the, the danger is that you have to think about every, everything becomes a constant decision. And you can actually get – you can actually become paralyzed by that because there's so many things. You know, what time are we eating dinner tonight? What time are we going to do this? What are we going to have? Do we have anything planned? No, we got to figure out what we're going to do. You know what I mean? And I remember as our kids were getting, you know, when we first started out, we could be really flexible. And once you start getting two, three, four, five kids, having a schedule, having a menu, having things prepared ahead of times, it just, otherwise you're just drowning. You can just, you can literally just drown in the indecisiveness of your life. And it's hard to have that right balance between flexibility and rigidity, you know, because it can be easy to... Like, you know, the, the Bible talks about you know, helping your neighbor pull his oxen out of the ditch. And, you know, that correlates to, you know, the person stopped alongside of the road. But it's very easy to be in your ritual of doing whatever you have to do and being efficient about it and just drive by any person that might need help because you're on your ritual. And so you have set up a ritual that's so rigid that even though, you, you know, sure, it's great to help people, you know, you actually never do it. Um, so you can make it too too uh, rigid where you never ha- allow any flexibility. You know, another way to make it too rigid is, you know, to say, I have this ritual, therefore anyone who doesn't is wrong. When your ritual is based on practical necessity and y- the choices that you have made and not on moral principles that are directly driving a ritual. You know, because it's different to say, on Sunday I'm going to go to church versus that Saturday morning I'm going to mow the lawn. You know, but it's easy to start taking the things that you've decided this is the way I'm going to do things and set my life in order and say that everyone else who doesn't do them is wrong. You know, I've been to a number of churches that all had the ritual, if you will, that, the you know, you were talking about pregnant women going first, but they had the ritual that you would let women go first, women and children go first, and then the men would go first, and then the young men would go first. And last. Would go last, excuse me. The young men would go last. And, you know, they did this, and there was nothing wrong with doing that because they were trying to deal with a specific sin that they saw in the church, right? That the young men would push front, they'd take all the meat, and there wouldn't be any left for the other people. And so they ordered things. But if you then take that ritual and say every church should be like that, and I've seen that happen, is that other churches copy that and start to do the same thing. And all of a sudden, well, maybe that's not the issue that they're dealing with. The issue might be that the husbands and wives don't, like, take care of their family together. And so the most important thing is for the families to go through together. Right. And so we can take rituals that might be good in one circumstance 
and say this then should become transplanted into every circumstance. And that's not how it should be. I mean, it, it should be dealing with an issue and you're trying to solve a problem with the ritual. And so I'm like the Sabbath should be applied to everybody. But others like that we create in our churches, in our homes, they aren't necessarily applicable to anybody else. So there's a part of it where, I mean, when we, when we do create rituals, it requires some sense of empathy. It requires some sense of being able to understand, you know, understand why we did it and how other people may have different needs. And I mean, so, and there's because otherwise, all decisions are all decisions are judgments. You know, I mean, there is an aspect of judging. We're all judging over whether it's use of time. When we, you know, we tell our kids, "I want you to do this." We leave. We come back an hour later. They've made no progress. There's this part of it where we judge them for their use of their time. And you, it's very easy to make your rituals become a judgment of other people when there's, uh, there's plenty of times where, like Joshua was saying, that shouldn't be the case. It's not a, what you were doing was not a moral decision. It was much more of a practice. It was moral in the practical sense, but it was not moral in that everyone should be doing this. Right. It can be moral that you're doing it to solve a, a sin issue that makes it a moral issue, but you're doing it in such a way that the, the practice itself is amoral. Right. Resident does not imply morality. It would enforce the practice. Another thing to think about rituals is God is a God of order. And, you know, you were talking about in creation that God created it and made the stars, moons. I mean, all these things can be tracked for, you know, thousands of years. We can go back and say, oh, there would have been an eclipse here at this point in time a thousand years ago, 2,000 years ago. And so when we think of those things, yeah, we should just recognize that that we should order things because, you know, God is not, you know, the idea of evolution is everything is based on chaos. Christians are to know better. And so we should be an orderly people because of that reason. You know, and, and just talking about how, uh, you know, you can have these rituals that are put in place without, you know, that are just setting things in order without necessarily putting, uh, you know, huge, that aren't based on clear moral principles. Um, but, you know, there are certain situations where, you know, a lot of moral principles end up getting infused into them when they didn't necessarily have them originally. Like an, uh, one thing that comes to mind on this whole topic is, you know, in the in the Reformation in England, one of the big issues was uh, vestures. So what are what's the minister wearing when he's going to preach uh, and conduct the service? Is he wearing, you know, the black robe or is he wearing normal clothes? And this became a huge issue, an issue that people were willing to die over. To say, am I going to follow what the king has set in place to say this is the way the church must be ordered? Or am I going to do the thing that maybe I don't consider it the most important thing, but am I going to do the thing that this church says that we want to do? Um, and, and it was a big issue, and it got a lot of things imposed into it, a lot of conflict over you know, the, uh, the history and traditions, and are you sticking with those? Or are you sticking with your, you know, your own beliefs, your own conscience, who has authority over the church? And a lot of issues end up getting thrust into this simple disagreement that in the end is not the biggest issue in the world. I mean, rituals innately become more important when people are willing to suffer for them or when people are willing to die for them. I mean, things like, I mean, you know, growing up saying the Pledge of Allegiance, you know, there was a part of where when you look at the history of the Pledge of Allegiance, it was very much instituted for nationalistic reasons, you know, I mean, to promote, you know, to promote a sense of, of patriotism and, you know, to, to drive that. And even the under God being added to kind of bring this religious element into it and to and to pull the church in with it. And, you know, is it is it a, is a flag the right thing to pledge your allegiance to? That, that starts to get to I mean, It's pretty clear the answer is no. Right. I mean, it starts to be a real problem whenever you're saying, I'll follow that flag wherever it goes. No, we have actual principles that we should follow. And so it, those things start to be an issue. But then you bake in the fact that there are people who say, my father died for that flag. My brother died for that flag. My son died for that flag. And now the rituals become so important that they can't separate, they can't separate it from the thought behind it. And, and this is, I mean... In the end, the Pledge of Allegiance is a religious issue. You know what I mean? And I mean, like, in the sense of it is, it's, it's at that level of what people care about. And so we have to be just really cognizant that anything that there's been suffering for, anything that has been connected to people being willing to sacrifice for, it, 
it, it it's going to be a it's going to be a ritual that it's very hard to to think about and to and to look at critically. But it's important for us to do that. I mean, we we look and I think you talked before about you know in vacation Bible school how you'd pledge allegiance to the flag. Well, if you go back after the Civil War when the whole idea of a pledge allegiance to the flag was introduced, I mean, it was introduced to separate pledging allegiance to the flag from pledging allegiance to like the Constitution. Right. Everybody was looking towards the Constitution as a unifying factor in America. But after the Civil War, there was a lot of twisting of the Constitution. And so there was a deliberate attempt to say it doesn't matter what the Constitution says. You need to be pledging allegiance to a symbol for the country. So whatever the country does, you will go along with. Right. Right. They just had a bunch of states leave saying we're not going to go along because the country's you know, whether right or wrong, the country is going in a way that's contrary to the Constitution, and they say you can't force us to go with it. So it was a, a real reset. Right. And the churches at that point were basically going, you shouldn't pledge allegiance to a flag. Why would you pledge allegiance to a flag? That means that you have no – you're trying to say that the country is always righteous, that the country is always doing the right thing so you can always follow it. The Bible says you must obey God and not man. If the country does something wrong, you shouldn't follow it. But the pledging allegiance to the flag is you're teaching young children to do the opposite. And then, like you said, they go to war and say, I died for this flag. Well, we need to speak out and say that is not what the people who fought for this country died for. They didn't die for a piece of fabric. Right. They either died for the principles of the country or they, they died out of a, a love for their, you know, their neighbors, whatever it was. But we should really try to move people away from that language because you're right. You tie the suffering to the flag and all of a sudden you're saying that ritual is a good ritual when biblically it's not. Right. And this is true, like I said, as you go to look at the church, when you look at religious issues. I mean, so I grew up with, in, as a Baptist and independent Baptist and, and the group that I grew up with communion, there was a very strong reaction to sort of the Catholic view of this, of transubstantiation. So communion was viewed as something that was purely symbolic. And so there was this aspect of, so, but communion, of course communion is symbolic, but it's also very real. But you, if you put too much meaning into it, then you were, they were so scared that we're approaching what the Catholics had held to that now you're putting too much attention on it. So we did communion maybe once a quarter at best. Maybe, you know, there are plenty of years where you did it twice a year. And so there's this thing where there's this ritual that you do, but your actual view of the ritual has become skewed by these historical views of things and by, again, uh, you know, competing religious views. And so you have to be able to stop and think about it and go, we shouldn't be scared of Catholicism. We should view communion correctly. We should view it as God mm-hmm. told, tells us to commun- you know. And so you know, it's kind of like on the two different sides. On one side, you're holding this thing as super sacred and you can't touch it. On the other side, there's something that should be more sacred, and you're taking it and you're making it kind of you're holding it too loosely and too lightly. And so, I mean, it can, it can really swing either way. And, I mean, you, you talked about the Lord's Supper, and it's an interesting one because just like when God is taking the people in to create a new nation in the Promised Land, I mean, they were a people, but now they were becoming a nation. God is giving them specific rituals to maintain themselves as a nation. And when they forget those rituals, they forget God, basically. When they don't do the Passover for a long time, right, Hezekiah says we should do a Passover, and all the people are saying basically, oh, yeah, there is a God. We should look at his law. And so when we look at those rituals having power, we should recognize that God, when he established a new nation, which was the church, right, the people who were not a people who are now the people of God, when he established that, just like he did for Israel, he gave us rituals. And probably the most obvious ritual is the Lord's Supper that he gave us when he established the church, when he went to die for the church. Right. And so when we think about that, it's really important how we deal with the Lord's Supper because it is like the... F- the fundamental sign of being in covenant with God in the New Covenant. And to just say, well, we're going to dismiss it because the Roman Catholics twist it to make it something that it is not, means that we're losing the ritual that God gave us and God commanded us to keep. You know, earlier I was talking about two categories of, of ritual, a ritual that you do that gives you the advantage of, okay, I don't have to think about it anymore, versus rituals that you're supposed to think about and then dispose of. This one's a different kind. It's one you're supposed to do, and you're supposed to be thinking about it as you do it. This is not one—this isn't a ritual that you get to check out on 
while you're doing it. If you're doing that, then you run the risk of all of the dangerous things about, oh, well, it could just become rote. We're just going through the motions. And this is one where God has specifically said, no, not that. When you do this, you're supposed to remember me. You're, it's, it's really interesting. It's right there in the language. You're supposed to think about this ritual when you do this ritual. I mean, the point of the ritual is to remember it. Yes. Communion is really big. The Lord's Supper is a, like you're saying, it, it's a, it's an integral part of Christianity. And it's one of those things where there's other, as, there, there are like sub aspects within communion that can become parts of rituals. Like, I know there have been times where you can go to churches and there are fathers who, when the bread is passed or the wine is passed, they hand out the elements to their family. And some people do it purely out of just, I'm the father and I'm giving them their, my bread. And there's other fathers who are like, I'm the priest of the family and I'm giving them my bread. But like we said, whether you're doing it intentionally or whether you're doing it just as this kind of thing that you like to do, your children they, and other people look at it and they start to attribute things to it. And one of the issues with communion is, is if my, you know, your son, Caleb, is saved, he's, he's, a, he's a communicant member. When you sit next to him and take communion, you are not father and son. You are brothers. And that's a really important picture. Caleb does not have any less standing in the eyes of God. He doesn't go to God through you. He doesn't come to communion by you or by any means associated with you. You're two brothers sitting at the table in the same family, and you're partaking of communion. And so the father handing out the elements, it adds this hierarchical layer to something where there is no hierarchy. The only hierarchy is God is your father, and God is both of your fathers. And so you can, by by ritual and by addition or permutation of ritual, add meaning to it that you don't mean to, or sometimes people really do mean to add that in, and they mean it. I am the priest of my family as opposed to, no, all those who are saved are priests, which is different than... And, and that's why it's worth having periodic conversations about, well, hey, why are we doing this thing this way? You know, our father's passing the communion out to their family because it's a matter of convenience and it's the only way we can get it to everybody in a, a reasonable amount of time. Okay, let's just make sure we say that. That's the only reason we're doing it. Or let's have fathers give it to other families or let's... Otherwise, you run the risk of, oh, father priest, which right. you know you want to avoid. You know, I mean, we just had a discussion at the last men's meeting about praying before church and why are we doing it? And we realized, hey, there's some history that... We were doing it for practical reasons that don't necessarily apply right now, so maybe the church needs to revisit the reasons that we might be doing it. Maybe it means we change some of the practice for it, but it's useful to have those kinds of conversations at points along the way so people can realize what the point of the signpost is right. with the ritual. So you're not cutting off the end of the ham for no good reason. Exactly. Yeah, I mean... You know, getting to liturgies and churches, you know, like all churches have a certain order of service. And one thing, having gone to Roman Catholic service for years, is what you find is if it's too much of a liturgy, I mean, I could recite all the things that you're supposed to say. I can't now, but it's been a long time. But, you know, you could recite all the things when they say and have no engagement whatsoever. And so it's important that, and so it became that this thing that you were just supposed to say, because this made you holy, this made you have worship God because you went through this process regardless of where your mind was. And, you know, that's the Roman Catholic Church, and there's, you know, places that have, you know, Protestant churches that have high liturgies. But even those that are, that don't, that don't have, they're not exalting their liturgies, we always have to be careful that, that the liturgy doesn't replace communion with God, that it doesn't become this idol that says, since we have it, we can't change it. And it's worthwhile at times just to change a little bit, maybe just for one Sunday, just so that people don't begin to think that that is the way that you have to do service, because it's not the way you have to do service. You know, and even some churches that are very uh, non-ritualistic are end up being quite ritualistic. You know, in Nigeria... Uh, having been there, the churches are a lot more charismatic. You know, they're not reciting things, but then they also do recite things. The pastor says, you know, hallelujah, and, or praise the Lord, and then everyone in the church is hallelujah. Well, you know, not, not to bash them too hard, but are they all really saying hallelujah because they really want to praise God, or is it a ritual that sometimes loses its meaning? And, you know, you look You can at, say it in a business meeting and people say hallelujah. Right. It's not 
you know, it's just they hear these that's words. That's how it and ingrained that's, it is. Okay. You probably it's say that it's that the Muslims ingrained. and they'll say, oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just, I mean, it's amazing. You say certain words there, and that's just an immediate knee-jerk response. That's just what they're supposed to say. You look at the, historically, look at the Quakers, where they have, uh, were kind of one of the core things. They've just stripped away all the liturgy from the church service. But in the church service, there's very specific things where this person is the one who starts the, the he's the first one who can speak, he's the last one who can speak. And basically, they have an extremely strict liturgy. You know, it's just different than the Roman Catholic Church. And the words aren't set out, but there is a very specific order of service in something that has no order of service. Just because you're not calling it a liturgy doesn't mean you don't have a liturgy. I, there was a mega church that um, I used to go to when I was a kid, and then I mean, after after we left, it grew. And by the time that you know, right now, I think they have something like seven Sunday morning services. And major newspaper went in there and was looking at this because of the vast amount of money that this church is getting and vast numbers of people that are going there. And they're like, you know, you, you know, it's it looks like it's very extemporaneous. But then you realize everything's planned right down to when the boy brings the bulletin up to the pastor at the front of the church. It, they've counted how many times that pastor's going to pat him on the top of the head before he goes back to his seat. I mean, it's all that rigidly practiced. It might look like it's contemporaneous. You know, and, and one of the reasons I think that we are, at least in, say, evangelical Protestant churches, we're scared of liturgies we want to leave room for the spirit to act and move well then you go to a church where you manufacture movement of the holy spirit because that worship leader knows exactly how many times you're going to repeat the refrain and exactly when he's going to tell you i feel the spirit's moving and close your eyes and raise your hands and and so just because you don't call it a liturgy doesn't mean that you don't have one. Right. I mean, I, I grew up in independent Baptist churches, and it was really funny how similar they all they all looked. They all had—I mean, my dad was an evangelist for a period of time, and we traveled around to a lot of different churches. And, you know, they all had the basic same structure. You know, you had the you know auditorium with, you know, pews. Everybody had pews. You know, they had the elevated platform. The pastor and the music leader would set up at the front. You know, guests, you know, they would set kind of separated from, you know, occasionally they would sit down on the pew and come up to the, you know, come. But I mean, there was this, there was this aspect to it that I didn't even question. But there are these things when you start going, you know, and if you go to, if you're in certain types of Reformed church, it's chairs, right? You know, it's chairs, and the young men of the church help set up the chairs before and after the church. And if you're some other types of Reformed church, it's kind of high church because there's kind of came from kind of Anglican backgrounds. Or, I mean, but there's a there is a structure to almost all of it, and the churches that tend to follow it, they have the same sort of structure. It's amazing how mimetic we tend to copy each other, and then we put things in place, and then we don't, and then we don't question it. But everybody kind of make certain assumptions about what these things mean. Well, and especially the next generation, they're a lot of times that the generation that established them thought somewhat about why they did them. But the right. next generation now is just doing it by rote. They're just right. doing it because this is what the previous generation did. And they can confuse that with worshiping God. And, you know, I, you know like in Isaiah 1 where God confronts them and he goes, look, you're doing all these feasts, you're doing all these things, but I despise them because you're just doing them by rote. You're doing them without consideration. You know, so God says to them in 18 through 20, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken." They've substituted walking in righteousness for following the rituals, for saying we're doing the things that we were commanded to do. And so they don't care about the poor. They don't care about the widows. They don't care about the orphans. They don't care about the oppressed. They're saying the rituals are good enough. And God says, no, think about this. And so every church occasionally should sit back and think, are we teaching our children that the rituals are the way that you come to God? rather than by faith you come to God? Are we teaching our children that, yes, you take the Lord's Supper because it's to remind you how you could be reconciled to God because there's no way to the Father except through the Son. 
But that reconciliation to God means that you're a new creature, so you examine yourself, or is it just that you drink the little cup and eat the, you know, the, the fragment of bread? And it's very easy to, for the children especially and the next generation to be looking at these things and just seeing the ritual and not seeing the faith that's required for that ritual to be effectual. And particularly if there's, it's, it's definitely more common if there's spiritual decay within the church because in the end, viewing rituals in the wrong way is just a form of idolatry. And so there's a part of it where if the church is moving away from a true practice of Christianity, from actually following after God, the rituals are going to become exalted. And so it's sort of like the, there are people who go, we shouldn't have rituals because this is what happens. And it's sort of like the young person saying, I don't want to become rigid. I don't want to become, in the end, there's, you have to have them. And you shouldn't think that because you have them, it's going to cause decay. It's, you know, the rituals really aren't fundamentally the cause of decay unless you're already viewing them wrong. Right, but I mean, I do think that there's some real use to, to varying some aspect of that ritual. I'm not saying even that frequently, but even if you vary it somewhat once a year, it testifies to the children in the church. It is not the ritual, right? Because you're not saying we must adhere to this thing, and I'm not saying that you do things that are arbitrary for this. I mean, to some extent, we do that, right? Because before we go to another book, like I think in a few weeks, we're going to spend, instead of the sermon, the majority of that teaching time will just be reading scripture. And that's enough to say it doesn't need to be the sermon that this is, you know, that it follows this pattern. And there's things that we do differently. And so it's worthwhile to do that because if it is just, it's one thing to say it's a liturgy because it makes it easier and that you want to order things. And this is your default order. It's another thing to say you can never violate it because that's when you made it an idol. And it's, I mean, and so I'm thinking of some several things in particular. I mean, you know, so like at our church when we do communion, we have we have bread it's in a basket and we have wine and there's cups, and it's very common that at the table the you know one of the men will pick up the bread and open it up and pan it around or he'll pour the wine. But it's very imp- there are times where I try to go out of my way to go hey to get one of the women to do it mm-hmm. to get some because in the end handing the bread out isn't it's it's just passing out bread. I mean, it's it's once you're you're doing it is the important part, but it's not that it touched someone else's hands that this person poured it into the cup. It's not holy hands pouring it into the cup. And we've also talked. I mean, about there's so things. So you're that, you're saying women don't have holy hands. I'm saying they do have holy hands. And I'm saying and I'm saying, but you don't require women. I mean, they're just as holy as men's hands, and that's that's kind of yes. That's very. Much. Say so if you say so. <laughs> I mean and. The other thing is like, you know, so the Bible, we, we did a podcast about women speaking in church and their churches. I mean, we, I think we talked about it very specifically that because of that principle where it says that, you know, there's two different things that God talks about. One is that women were deceived and it also talks about them being under authority. We don't let young men speak in the church who aren't the head of household. And there's also other times where you need to make sure that women have certain roles so that people don't look at them and go, women can't speak in the church because of something about women that women are bad, that there's some fundamental problem with women. That's not what Scripture says. It is specifically about authority. And so if you don't create those things, it's really easy for some really fundamental things to get skewed in the church. And you can have children looking at it going, women can't do anything. And I mean, the the church is a woman. You know what I mean? The church is the bride of Christ. And so if you get this wrong you really mess other things up. And it's really easy to look at like the Muslim view of women where they consider women to be very much second-class citizens and go, oh, that's Islam and that's not Christianity. Well, where did Muhammad get most of his ideas? It was from the Jews and the Christian quote-unquote traders that were going through there. I mean, he didn't come up with these things without seeing it practiced by people that largely identified with either the Jews or with Christians. And so these things come into the church all the time and we just see it developed and more open and more honest, I mean, more clear in Islam. But the roots of that are there by, you know, the, the possibility to go that way. The possibility to go that way is sitting in every church. Right. And you'll hear people say women have to submit themselves to men. Well, that's not what Scripture that's says. not what the Scripture says. The head says. of a woman is her husband. You know what I mean? So she submits herself to her husband. It's not that my wife doesn't have to submit herself to every man in the church. That is clearly not what Scripture teaches. But if you get that wrong, 
boy, do you have some real problems. You know what I mean? And you can you can create some very dangerous situations. And you, I mean, that problem where you were talking about handing it out before, where handing out the, the elements, and that you could have men hand it out to other women or other families. And my first thought when you said that was, then people will start to think that somehow married men are more important than anybody else in the church. And right. so all these things set temper, they set the, the tendency of how you look at things. And it's really important for us to, to be really careful because there are people watching. Children are watching. Unbelievers are watching. And they're going to read into it things that they shouldn't read into it. And we need to be deliberate to say, no, that isn't what it means. It doesn't mean that a woman's less than a man because she can't speak in church. It means that that God has given her the role to to cause her husband to go study the scriptures by asking him the question at home and that this is about the unity of the family and not about denigrating women. Right. And, and not just children are watching, but wolves are watching. I mean, you know, there are false prophets and false teachers in the church who are looking for opportunities to exploit. And so when you get some of these things skewed in a certain way, it is they really create opportunities for false prophets to come in and lead people astray because you've already created the shape of this false doctrine. And it's so easy for them to say the reason we do this, to supply people with a reason that satisfies their, their sin nature, satisfies their idolatry, satisfies their desire to rebel against God, and you know, this is how false religions and cults are basically created. So I, a question sort of in response to that about the wolves are watching is, is there any advantage then to looking at the rituals as part of the structure of the defenses against the wolves? I mean, is there a way that that, that badly structuring and and badly describing the rituals is if if that's an entry point for a wolf to come in and take advantage of the sheep is there a way that a proper a, a proper defense a pop, proper description a proper use of those rituals is something that keeps the wolves out on the edge i think i mean the answer is is yes and and no because in the end, we can pervert anything. And so, I mean, no matter what, no matter how you structure it properly, the thing that made me really think about it, though, the way, one of the ways really to defend against it is, like you said, is sometimes you, the things that can be changed that are really practical, that really have a huge a practical element, changing them up periodically, I think that it draws out, because there's a part of it where there are people who are going to, they're going to react to the change, and they're going to react like, you can't do that. And that shows you where there are, already a desire to create idolatries out of something. And, and, and it's going to show to anybody who is watching, hey, don't make this holy. But I think there's a part of it where God works out his own, God works out his will through well-defined things. It's not, you can't define it so well that you're never going to have, you're never going to have wolves. But, it, but, it, but it's a natural defense. And I think one of the other aspects that I would say, and again, you can't have a defense that's perfect. There is no perfect defense, right? I mean, there warfare is asymmetric by its nature, and, right? And you know, Satan attacks Jesus Christ with the Word of God, so you know, there's no perfect defense. But I do think explaining why you're doing it is one of the most important aspects of that, because there are people, if you never explain it, that will come into the church that are wolves that will say the w- reason that women can't speak is because they're second-class citizens to try to draw people after themselves. But if you're saying this is the reason, then you're defending against that. And so to make the rituals non-ritualistic, if you will, by saying there's actually thought process in this, I think that's the best defense. Right. And I would add to it, and and you see this pattern pushed throughout Scripture, is you need to be training your children to ask why are we doing this? I mean, it's it's part of the Passover feast as even built into the liturgy is have your child ask at these points or your children are supposed to ask, what's that pile of rocks over there? Oh, that's when we cross this river. Uh, and, you know, when you're walking to the temple to give that sacrificial lamb because one of your donkeys just had its first colt, you're supposed to say, hey, there's a reason why we're redeeming the firstborn. You know, those kinds of things are there, and no, you're right. They're not perfect. If they're not done in faith, even those things are worthless. But they are part of what God said to do as a way to preserve 
the valuable parts of the liturgy from one culture to the next. And what you want to do is, I mean, the way you defend against wolves is you put the best defense out as you can. And the problem is there's some wolves in your congregation that will want to follow the wolves. So you can't think you're going to have the perfect defense because the problem is you have you have people in the camp that <laughs> agree with the wolves that are coming in that want to run with the wolves. And so you're never going to have that perfect defense. But really, speaking of these things, and especially, you know, you were talking about the the sacrifices and stuff. And obviously, you know, we have two basic rituals in the church, right? Baptism and, and the Lord's Supper. And these things, when you're taking your unbelieving child to one of these things, you need to talk to them about it. You need to explain what's the pictures. Do you remember what the pictures are? You know, I've stood before rooms full of pastors and said, do you, any of you know why you baptize? What are the pictures of baptism? What is it doing? Why do you have to go get wet? And you know, this is in Nigeria, and a lot of them didn't know, right? It was just this thing that you do. Same with the Lord's Supper. What, you know, the Lord's Supper is about proclaiming his death until he comes. Well, if you're just eating a, you know, a piece of bread and drinking a cup of wine, you're not proclaiming anything about his death. There has to be words there that explain it and that talk about it. And so we need to be deliberate, especially with unbelievers in our families, in the church, of saying, this is what these things point to. They aren't just meaningless rituals. They have real meaning behind them. I think when you talk about a natural defense, the other thing that came to mind was there's a point where, you you know, the Bible talks about your steps being ordered by the Lord. And the answer is, is if your steps are ordered by the Lord, then if he leads, if if he ends up bringing you, you know, into conflict with wolves, that's where he wanted you to be. And so there's this part where sometimes God— we did an episode on scandals in the church, and sometimes God leads you through these difficulties to try your patience, to increase your faith, to do, you know, and so. And usually to drive some repentance because there was usually sin involved right. on your part, too. And so, I mean, but the answer is, is yes, there is a natural defense, but we shouldn't think that if we run into difficulties, it means, it always has to mean that fundamentally the, the structures are wrong because God uses these things to, to build his build his flock. I mean, the point of defenses is actually to defend against something. It's right. not. Exactly. Pretty. I mean, I just want to reiterate one thing because you know you look at the you look at the Reformation. One of the things that the Reformation was about was going into the Roman Catholic Church and saying, you know, Calvin's term for the Roman Catholic Church was vain superstition, and that's because they had all these rituals, they had all these things that they were supposed to do, and nobody was paying any attention to what they meant. It just became vain superstition. And we need to be really careful that that those people who were going there were sure they were Christians. They were sure they were right with God because they did their confession. They took the Lord's Supper. They did, you know, they went through these processes that made them have assurance of salvation. And assurance of salvation can come through rituals. And that's not where it's supposed to come through. It's not supposed to come through taking the Lord's Supper every week. It's not supposed to come through going to church. It's not supposed to come through even having, you know, praying for an hour every morning. Works don't make you right with God. You, we need to make sure that we don't let any ritual replace the need for faith, replace the need for actually walking, trusting in God, saying, I'm going to do the things that God said, even when it's hard. These are the things that show that you actually have light, that you actually have understanding from God. And the rituals can make us think that we do, while we really don't. Right. A form of godliness without the power thereof. In a sense. Right. I mean, and yeah, the rituals, yeah, that, I think that's a, you know, when when Jesus Christ came, one of his charges to the Pharisees is that you follow the traditions of men, that all you're doing is following your rituals. All you're doing is saying you need to wash your hands a certain way. You need to do this, you need to do that, and that means you're right with God. And Jesus Christ said, no, that's not it. It's looking at the commandments of God and desiring to obey them, having a heart towards God that you say, He's a better God than I am. I should desire to do what he wants me to do. And it's not just following rituals, following traditions. It's, it's, it's about actually desiring to obey God. I mean, what, what it, as you were talking, what it made me think of was during World War II, one of the things that happened is the United States ended up building all these little supply outposts on all these islands as we were building up you know, a logistics chain to, to, you know, to wage war against Japan. And so there were some of these little places where there were these tribes that had never come into contact with any form of civilization. You know, they still, you know, they had bone fish hooks and all these other things. And so all of a sudden one day, American, an airplane, you know, lands, they build a runway, 
They set up a temporary trading post there. And so for several years, these people have access to metal fish hooks. They have access to all sorts of technology that they've never had before. And then one day, they pack up and they leave. And they don't come back. And one of the things that happened after this is some of these tribes actually, you know, they would have, you know, next to the, next to the landing strip, they would have a little, a little shack where they would have the radio. Well, the natives would go back and they would tend to the runway and they would build the shack and they would make a little fake radio or if there was radio left and somebody would sit there and they would say the words that they had heard the people say, they would, you know, that Roger, Roger, you know, and they would, some of them knew it better than others. And it was, it was always related to someone with a strong personality. It was always related to someone who could convince other people. But for the first time in their life, they had come into contact with this power that was vastly beyond anything they had ever seen. And when it left, they thought that the shape of the field, they thought that the, ha you know, that the words that were said was what called the airplanes down from the sky. And so they were called cargo cults because they wanted to bring back the airplanes. And I remember reading about that for the first time and thinking there are churches where 50 years ago, they came into contact with something that was powerful. You know, whether they're doing, I mean, I knew people who would do sawdust, you know, they would do, you know, tent ministries and they would set up a tent and they would have, you know, like the sawdust trail. They would have old fashioned revivals. They would bring in old timey music. But in the end, there's a form of this where they're saying we, we want to bring down the power of God. And that's the danger of rituals in the end is there's this part of it where, like I said, you, you believe that the words, you believe that the form is what calls down God as opposed to, no, you have to serve God in spirit and in truth. It's like thinking that wet roads cause rain. You, right. you know, you've got the causal story exactly backwards. Right. When we think of our traditions, you know, in our family, in our church, if we think of, of the things that we do and that we just automatically do them in a certain way, these are very beneficial, but they can also be very dangerous. They can be very dangerous if they're done thoughtlessly, if they're just done by rote. So we should really consider what we teach our children about traditions of men. Because obedience to God is what God calls us to. It's what he saves us to. It's what it means to have a heart of flesh that has the law written on it and the law written on our mind. It's really easy to substitute form for reality. So we should be really careful in our churches that we don't substitute form for reality. Thanks for joining us. This has been The Conquering Truth, a project of Reformation Baptist Church. If you found this helpful, you can visit us online at theconqueringtruth.com and subscribe here or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for watching.